I'm Dami Virgin for Sinclair Broadcasting in San Antonio, Texas. Si hay trabajo y si por lo menos el inmigrante viene a trabajar, por lo menos le den la oportunidad, claro, de trabajar. Texans have the backbone uh, and the will to secure a border. Cartels could care less about that. They don't care about lives. They don't care about people they poison. They don't care how many people they kill. They, they care not. We have the immigrants who turn themselves into Border Patrol when they cross the border along Eagle Pass, Del Rio, El Paso, the Valley, California, Arizona. But then you have those who are illegally entering under the radar, some using coyotes to try and get to where they're going. We need to make sure that we have a bipartisan uh, immigration reform that allows for legal immigration to this country. We want folks to come to our country. It needs to happen through a legal and organized way that is safe to the migrants. But that doesn't always pan out as expected. Many are used as pawns to squeeze more money out of the families who fear their loved ones will be murdered by the coyotes. This week, we're joined by a retired FBI agent and an immigration attorney who explains what happens when these immigrants become victims of kidnapping and families fall prey to extortion. What is the right way? A lot of times the right way is not an option. So we are now joined with two people that I have known for a while here, working on different immigration cases, missing kids cases, uh, you name it. So first one is, of course, uh, we'll start with the Miss Amy Maldonado. Amy, thank you so much for joining us. Amy is an immigration attorney, and she's much more than that. Amy has those special cases that are difficult at times, and she has she has also what some people don't think about when we talk about the systems broken. She has those high-end clients that you would think we would want in this country because they're at the top of their fields. So Amy, thank you very much for joining us. And we also have retired FBI agent who is now in charge of Project Absentees. And we do a lot of work with Abel and he also, I call from time to time and say, hey, there's a kid missing, can you help this family? There's this case over here, can you help the family? So Abel, thank you so much for always joining us. I enlist both of you a lot of times because you're truly experts in your field. So I wanted to start with Abel because Abel has been investigating some of these cases where there's stash houses. Can you talk a little bit about what you're seeing, Abel? Absolutely, um, glad to be here. Thank you, Yami. Um, so I'm here in San Antonio, and we have been uh, looking at um, like human stash houses. And a lot of these folks, these immigrants are coming from, uh, obviously from uh, the border, from Eagle Pass, Piedras Negras, um, other areas. And they're coming by either hopping on a train or they're being picked up by uh, human traffickers, uh, otherwise known as coyotes, uh, on this side of the border. Uh, on, on the other side, there's there's coyotes on uh, in the Mexico side and, as well as over here, and a lot of these folks are picking them up, and they're befriending uh, these these immigrants coming over here from different parts of the either Central or South, even Mexico and Central and South America, 
Uh, and so they know nothing about the, the way things work around here. And they assume that when somebody's being picked up or they're picking somebody up, uh, that you know, mm -hmm. these people have good intentions. Uh, what oftentimes happens, uh, they get picked up usually four or five at a time. And what's happening here in San Antonio uh, is they're, they're taking them to stash houses, what we call human stash houses. And there are just a number of them scattered around the city. Um, I've got some uh, ICE agents I talked to. Uh, they gave me a number of over 100 uh, stash houses just in San Antonio alone. Just a staggering number. 100 in San Antonio alone? Over 100, correct. Okay. And so they're bringing them over there. They hold them there for you know, a few, um, several days, sometimes several weeks. And what they do is they extort, um, they get a hold of their phone. Uh, they look through the numbers in the phone and start calling those numbers on the phone, assuming that they're family members. And they start demanding uh, money. Uh, they're extorting them. And these are, you know, people living here in the United States that are breaking the law, they're committing a crime, and they're preying on uh, these immigrants who, uh, are lost and, and don't know the way things work around here. And they're picking them up and then holding them hostage. Uh, and they're, in some cases, they're um, being held at gunpoint. They're being told that if their family members do not pay uh, in, a, in a certain amount of time, that they're going to kill them. Um, oftentimes, what happens is they, they get trafficked to other stash houses and uh, then again, victimized the same way by, by new traffickers. There are criminal elements that take advantage of us being there. There are criminal elements that would go someplace else and cross dangerous contraband like fentanyl to get it into our communities and cause harm and havoc. There is what you see on TV and there is what happens on the ground. Amy, and, and these are stories that you hear often as an attorney. What happens once, once these people come forward or once they're found and they're found to be someone that's been kidnapped or their families are being extorted, at what point do you jump in and what are you able to do for them? Well, first, there are a couple different visas for people who've been trafficked. So there is a T visa for victims of trafficking, but most people don't realize that that's not for human trafficking. There was a lot of chatter about the people who flew to Martha's Vineyard and how they could get T visas. And that's not true. T visas are reserved for victims of labor trafficking and sex trafficking, or I should say, hopefully that's not true. Um, but normally, you know, when once the immigrants find their way to pro bono or low bono legal services, an immigration attorney can help them qualify for a U visa as a victim of crime. The problem with U visas, and you can get a U visa for false imprisonment, which is being held against your will, for extortion. I mean, there are a lot of different things that you can get a U visa for, including a broader definition of trafficking than the one that's used for T visas. The problem with U visas is that they're therefore victims of crime who are being helpful or will be helpful in the future to prosecutions. And they require a certification from a um, law enforcement official. And, you know, in today's times, it depends on where you are and how political your local law enforcement agency is, whether or not they will even agree to support 
a victim of crime who is an immigrant who qualifies for this visa. And there's no, you know, if the local law enforcement is not willing to support the visa, there's nothing you can do. They do not qualify. There's no relief for them. So that's that's basically what's available above and beyond, you know, those people who are coming to the border. And again, I say this a million times, people who are coming to the border seeking asylum are lawful um, they're lawful asylum seekers. They're seeking the protection of the laws of the United States against return to persecution and torture. And you'll see people say all kinds of crazy stuff like, oh, you know, they're economic migrants. I have yet to meet an, a single person from the Northern Triangle who did not have at least enough of an asylum claim to pass what's called a credible fear interview. So we decided after World War II, when the United States returned people to die in concentration camps in Europe, that we did not want to err on the side of sending people back to their deaths. And so the process for asylum is essentially for those people who are at the border or who are, you know, eventually in expedited removal, if they don't make it all the way in, they can establish that they have a essentially a small chance of possibly proving their asylum case. And that's enough for us to agree, you deserve a court hearing. You deserve your day in court. You deserve the full opportunity to gather evidence, to get witnesses, to get testimony together, to find an attorney because the immigration laws are so complex. And of course, everything occurs in English. And a lot of, we not only have Spanish speakers, we have people who speak Haitian Creole, we have people from Africa. And as you know, Yemi, we have a lot of people from countries that's in the Northern Triangle that speak indigenous languages. They don't speak Spanish as their first language. They may speak, you know, um, a variety of my languages or, or whatever it is. Yeah. yeah. I think it's, is it Keche? Keche? Yes, I forget the name correct. of the languages. Correct. Yeah. And you have border officers who are, you know, I mean, I continue to say we treat what's happening at the border as a law enforcement problem, it's not a law enforcement problem. It's a humanitarian crisis. We need to have social workers. We need to have support services. Yes, there's a law enforcement component, but we're we're going about this the wrong way. So you have people taking these desperate measures to evade border patrol, and then they end up in these houses and, you know, and at risk of, and victims of crime and possibly with no no way out on the other end if they can't get the support of local law enforcement. So what kind of evidence do you need? Because what what Abel's talking about down here right now are the people that went under the radar, did not ask for asylum, right. and had basically paid a coyote to bring right. them in under the radar. So what kind of evidence do they have to provide so that law enforcement believes them that they are the victim of a crime. And that's not usually the only crime. And I want able to talk about that also after. Yes, the coyote may have crossed them, but what else are they crossing? What other crimes are being committed? Because at that point, it's a criminal organization, right? So the asylum laws require that you be physically present in the United States. And you can either do that by presenting yourself at the border or people who cross unlawfully, they if they enter without inspection, they're still eligible to file for asylum for a year after they arrive. So if they have an asylum case based on what happened to them in their home country, they have a year from the time, you know, that they get here. Obviously, some of that time they're being held against their will um, 
to file an affirmative application with the asylum office of USCIS. And, and, you know, again, in terms of proving that you're a victim of crime for U visa purposes, it depends on your local law enforcement. You know, some law enforcement agencies are just not interested in this. There are lots and lots of these cases. There are not necessarily the resources or the will to investigate them. But if, I mean, I think Abel could speak to this better than me. If the law enforcement were to investigate them, there's going to be a paper trail. There's There are going to be text messages. There will be WhatsApp messages. There will be some kind of record of the extortion that you can find if somebody cares enough to look. And this is happening so regularly that I don't know that, you know, local law enforcement even has the resources to investigate these crimes. Yeah, Abel, on that note, I mean, the people that you're finding that are victims, and I know we have one probably in mind that you and I have talked about. I mean, these people aren't just being kept and being given three meals a day and having steak and having whiskey and a cigar while, you know, they're waiting. What is happening to them? And also how much resistance or what are you seeing? Are they being offered that opportunity to be a witness to then get to the top of that organization who's been smuggling people in? I think, um, Amy, I think you, you, you pointed out that you know, lo local law enforcement, uh, even as as well as federal, I think they're um, with a number of folks coming in. Um, some of them just don't have the resources, especially the local. Uh, they're just inundated with uh, with 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 this. I mean, day in and day out. Um, we have I have a couple, at least two that I can think of right now, um, victims. Uh, that escaped, you know, these stash houses. And um, they are victims, truly victims. I've got, uh, as as Amy pointed out, I've got a paper trail where family members actually used, you know, MoneyGram. Um, they've got receipts of the money that, that they paid uh, these, these people. I've got these people identified. Uh, and, you know, I'm a nonprofit. I'm, I'm no longer in law enforcement, but we've done a lot of digging. Uh, and I, th I think, you know, what we can serve at least is to augment some of the resources they have and bring the evidence forward so that they can start taking a look at these victims that we have. Uh, and that oftentimes uh, when victims are encountered or police encounter them, especially not being from, uh, from this country, they oftentimes lie um, to, to police. And so that further causes problems for uh, law enforcement to, to take them seriously, like, oh, right, that actually happened. But when we start talking to them, uh, we realize that, you know, they're victims. Uh, they were, um, you know, held hostage at gunpoint. And, you know, they're going to lie. They're going to not tell the truth because they're scared. Um, and we've been able to identify, as I mentioned, at least two. We've got others that we're going to start talking to. Um, that have um, been victimized this way. And so, yeah, Amy, you touched on, I think law enforcement has got their, um, they, they've got, I mean, I, I've been there on that side and, you know, caseload uh, can be just enormous. And to have these coming in um, is, is, I mean, it, it could be just overwhelming to them uh, because I know that they have a number of these already that they're working uh, and they're trying to, 
uh, identify um, criminal elements um, here, especially in South Texas, uh, how they're tied into uh, cartels in Mexico. And I know they're working kind of the, the bigger, maybe more grander scale of things, whereas we're looking more kind of inward uh, at our city and seeing how uh, it's impacting these immigrants coming in and how U.S. citizens uh, are, are involved uh, with these criminal organizations. Every state has become a border state because all these individuals that are coming across, aside from the families, the single adults, the gotaways, the drugs that are coming in are going to other states. They're not staying in Texas. So that's Mexico over there, so they'll come across, they'll bring them across on a raft. They usually have 30, 40 you know, immigrants on these rafts, they're bringing them across. They know where to drop them off, and they know where to walk. They're gonna walk up to that ball field. Single adults, which we're looking for right now, those that are trying to avoid apprehension and get away, uh, either they try to get to a stash house or they try to make it to a roadway and then get picked up by a human smuggler. So that's continued to increase. There are U.S. citizens that are still breaking the law. So regardless of where these people are at, if you're kidnapping them, torturing them, extorting money, I mean, you're, you're breaking the law. If they're doing it to them, what's to stop them? And yes, granted, it may be a little bit easier because they're not from the United States, but really what is there to stop them to continue and rev up their crime wave against other people who are U.S. citizens? You know, and what can we do? Amy, with your clients, what is the worst that you've heard from somebody who's been held by the coyotes? You know, I actually am the wrong person to ask about this because most of my clients come to me because they're at the border or on the other side of the border. And so I go, I do things like, you know, in that case, Yami, that you brought to me with a Haitian mom and her two twins under the bridge. I went to federal court and got the government to agree to parole them into the U.S. So they didn't have to go through that. And there were so many people in Mexico, 70,000 people in MPP, and a handful of lawyers, most of whom I know personally, trying to help them. And they're, again, just like law enforcement, we don't have enough lawyers to help people um, at the border. So yeah, I was, I am fortunate not to be on that side. And you know, Yami, in my in my day job, I represent like major league baseball teams and stuff. So I don't do this. For <laughs> Which we are actually going to talk about in next week's podcast, because everybody thinks that it is only the people with no money or the people that are crossing through the river, which literally you can walk. You don't have to swim it. There's parts of the river that I've walked right across. And there are people who have the wealth who have the means, who are also running into problems because the system is broken. Abel, if somebody sees something, if someone sees something, I mean, you can be in Michigan where Amy is now. She used to be here in Houston. You could be in Michigan and you see something that's out of place because these people have to, are trying to make it to a family or trying to make it to a job. If you're in the middle of the Midwest and you see something wrong and something's telling you this does not look right. There's tinfoil all over the windows. There's a lot of cars. There's a lot of movement going on. What would you tell people to do? Well, first and foremost, um, you know, to, to get immediate action or I would have them call local police. Um, if, if they are not like, if there's no action taken, 
Um, I would just be persistent with local police. Uh, if they can contact a federal agency uh, like uh, Immigration Customs Enforcement, um, some of the other ones out there, give them a call, uh, report it, but, but, but please report it. Uh, because you know these are these are people, and they have families, and they're they're traveling here. I think for a better life. And, and I'll tell you something else. It's uh, having talked to these immigrants has really just changed my entire perception. Um, it, I've become probably perhaps more empathetic to their plight, and they have um, you know they they want to come over here for a better life, and you know they're. When they arrive here, they they have you know expectations that they're going to be safe or at least safer. But then they encounter uh, these people that are exploiting, and they're in every city, um, at least in South Texas. We've we've seen evidence that there are stash houses in every city down here um, throughout Texas, and I I can only imagine even throughout the United States. So this is a big business. Um, so if if anybody, and, and that could be anybody out there, uh, sees what, what you just described, because it's exactly what it is. They see people coming in. I just had a lady call uh, recently. She says, hey, I'm just, there's eight backpacks, like various sizes on, on the porch. So there's, uh, there's eight more coming in. They've got their luggage. They've got their um, you know, evidence that uh, there's people coming in. So there's, they'll see luggage. They'll see uh, just people in and out. Uh, cars, uh, different cars. Uh, so if they see that, yeah, call police, call, uh, get a hold of law enforcement in any capacity. Uh, it's just very important. This has to end. It's just, it's become too pervasive and uh, problematic here in the United States. And it's only going to get worse. Amy, any advice for anyone that's going to hear this and they feel like their loved one is being held by someone who was supposed to help them come across. What would you tell a family member or a friend who's expecting them, can't find them? What would you tell them to do? I mean, I would echo Abel, you have to call law enforcement. I know people are afraid to, to call immigration. Sometimes people who are coming who are seeking asylum or seeking you know, safety, their relatives might also be undocumented. And as you know, Yami, we have, I don't know how many mixed status families. There are so many families where you've got some relatives who are US citizens, some who are green card holders, and some who are undocumented. And so they're really afraid to go to immigration, but call law enforcement, you need help. And there are things that, you know, the most important thing is that your loved one is safe. And if they're in the United States, and they're rescued by law enforcement, yes, they may end up in removal or deportation proceedings, but there are things that can be done for them in those proceedings. They have defenses, they can get help, but the most important thing is to make sure your loved one is safe. Well, I wanna thank you both for joining me to do this. And I mean, this issue is so complex. I don't think for the most part, you can't meet eye to eye on everything that is going on, but I think we always do have to remember that there are human beings and it is difficult. And especially for me, I think being a journalist, because I really have to listen to both sides and I have to present both sides. And, you know, at the same time, I have to be there and I see them when they're there with their children, with the babies. And I think this wave 
has even opened up my eyes even more as a journalist, just because I am seeing people from a country, and I was born in Panama, I'm seeing people from two countries whom I know how they are, the Venezuelans and the Colombians. And to see some of those women in there that you can tell they're coming from those countries, they're very used to having money to do their hair, having money to do their nails, you know? And now they're in these conditions that they have to come here and beg. And you can tell the shame in their face. I think that's what gets me, is seeing the shame and the pride lost because they had to come here on their knees to beg for help. And that's the part that really gets to my heart when I see them, you know, but I have a job to do. So I also have to present everybody. So every everybody has that point of view, but there's always that human element also. But Yami, there's so much misinformation. I mean, you know that I am very, uh, I am all about immigration all the time and I'm very pro-immigrant, but there's so much bad information. And when I saw that flight to Martha's Vineyard, I was like, boy, Ron DeSantis just stepped in it because all of my Venezuelan clients in Florida are my business clients. They're wealthy. They tend to be conservative. They would vote Republican, but you just spit in their face, like by sending people fleeing Venezuela with the conditions there, with the socialist government there, you know, to treat people like that. It's, it's horrible. And I always have like conservative people come to me and say, oh, I have the greatest person in my church. She's been here 20 years. Can you help her? And I said, the woman you're talking about is like 99% of everybody else here change your opinion, change your views. You know, our, uh, I'm Mexican-American, so the U.S. like stole half of uh, the South from Mexico, but that's a whole other story. But most of the people who immigrated to the U.S. in the past will tell you, oh, our families came the right way through three generations ago. We didn't have immigration laws like this before the 1960s. We had some immigration laws, but not the way they are today. And so people who think their families came here the right way, that's not true. The The way to come here was completely different. So I just wish people would get more informed and stop making, this is not political. This is about human beings. You know, immigrants have been great for our country. Immigrants continue to be great for our country. And, you know, we're going to talk about this next week, Yami, but I, like I was saying earlier, we have a nationwide labor shortage. We need 11 million people to come work in our country. We don't have that. What's the solution? We're not going to get it from politicians, Democrat or Republican. Yeah, and, we, and we've talked about that. And Abel, I, I thank you for what you do, because I want people to also know Abel's retired from the FBI. He started the nonprofit. He helps families to try to find their loved ones. He tries to help with murder investigations. And now Abel's also taking this on with the stash houses because it is a problem in San Antonio. It is not only they're exploiting human beings, they're also doing other crimes. I mean, I have not heard of yet somebody that's a coyote in this area that that's the only thing they do because they diversify. So, Abel, I really want to thank you for everything that you're doing for the community. Thank you, Yami. I just want to say one last thing, um, and I didn't, I didn't mention this earlier. It's about the uh, federal statute for kidnapping. When I was in Chicago, I worked um, violent crime to include kidnapping cases. And so the kidnapping statute uh, pretty much reads, you know, anything that anybody who unlawfully seizes um, or confines or, or kidnaps a person 
okay, and makes a demand or a, a, a ransom. Um, and in this case, they're, they're sending money through interstate, uh, interstate wire, they're wiring the money. And so this, you know, this has to be investigated. This is a traditional kidnapping case with extortion added to that and, and a ransom demand. And I, I think it's very important that if federal law enforcement agencies come together and look at this for what it is, uh, you know, maybe that'll be the, 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 the answer to, to solving a lot of these problems. Now, we do want to go out to one of our reporters out in the El Paso area uh, for KFOX and CBS4, both Sinclair stations. We're speaking to Nasaya Mancini. Nasaya, and you're out in Hudspeth because of an incident that just happened involving migrants. Can you tell me what is going on? Yeah, of course. So, yeah, we're out here in Hudspeth County, which is about 80 miles, I would say, from El Paso, Texas. And what happened is this last Tuesday, so the 27th, um, there was an incident involving two migrants here in Hudspeth County. And basically, to break it down for you, um, what police are allegedly saying happened is that two men here that live in Hudspeth County, Mike Shepard and his brother, Mark, um, basically they were hunting and they were driving along this road um, and along this road there was a water tank and they said that they apparently had passed the water tank but saw something so they drove back um, and according to an arrest affidavit um, that we have received today when those two brothers mike and mark were driving back they got out of the car mike shepherd did have a gun at that point he apparently according to the rest affidavit allegedly leaned over the car and fired two shots it was later found out um, that two migrants were unfortunately injured one was a male and was pronounced dead at the scene and then one was a female um, she got shot in the stomach she was taken to um, a hospital over here in el paso to like help with her injuries um but there is a couple interesting facts that i think is important to note about this case so again allegedly in the arrest affidavit when they had talked to mike's brother so his name is mark so mike was the one who allegedly shot the two migrants mark was in the car at the time during that shooting allegedly mark had said he told investigators that they claimed that they had seen some type of an animal they said it was some type of a pig um, and that's why they shot because they were on, you know, a hunting trip and that's why they, they fired those two shots. And in the arrest affidavit, it does say that Mark told investigators that apparently, you know, they had seen that animal. That's why they did fire those two shots. And he had first said in his first statement that they um, he had seen a him so he said did you get him and then changed his statement later to did you get it so you know um the brothers are claiming that they did allegedly see an animal and that is why they shot um those two people and right now both of the brothers are booked in el paso county um and they're being charged for manslaughter we don't know anything else related to their charges you know, at this time, but okay. as, soon, as soon as we get that information, you know, we'll share it with you. But it's definitely a very interesting story being out here the whole day, talking to people in this county. A lot of people say, you know, that it was something that's completely random, doesn't really 
happen these kind of situations here. And they're also saying um, a lot of the minorities that we spoke with saying that, you know, they're worried that they're going to be next. Like what if they're walking out on their acres of land that they owned out here because it is a very rural town. They're worried that somebody might just come onto their property and shoot them because they think that they're a migrant, unfortunately. Okay. So let me ask you, I mean, the group, and I just got, uh, just happened, I guess, as we're recording this, a statement that just came in from Homeland Security Investigations, where they're stating that there was a group of 13 undocumented non-citizens. Now, did, did they say they only saw one? Because in the original um, press release that we received, it was that the migrants were on the side of the road getting water. So that yeah. they... Mm -hmm. Yeah, so they were by, and we actually visited that water tank um, that they were by, and yeah, it, it was said that, you know, that group of migrants was there getting water, um, just standing there trying to get a drink of water as they were trying to come into the United States. The Rio Grande was probably maybe a couple miles back from there. So they had walked, you know, almost to Hudsmith County, very, very, very close. So there was that group. It doesn't say anything in their rest affidavit if uh, the brothers knew that there was more than two there if they knew that there was a group. But in the rest of affidavit, it also says that when those migrants were there getting a drink of water, they saw that car originally coming that was driven by the Shepherd brothers and they hid behind a bush. And then in the rest of David, it goes on to say that they kind of peeked out behind the bush just to see if the coast was clear. And that's when those two shots were fired. Okay. And then here's another question for you. You're out there now. What is it like? I mean, I'm over here. I cover usually I'm out in Eagle Pass, Del Rio, the valley, and we see people literally walking across. Is this a common thing? Are your numbers, from what I understand, from Border Patrol, the numbers are starting to go up in El Paso. But what about this area where you're standing right now in Hudspeth County? And I have been there, believe it or not, is very, very rural. So how are the numbers there for migrants coming across illegally? I'm not sure about the exact numbers just because we haven't talked to, you know, the border sector in this region. But what I will say, you know, we did go out to where um, that alleged shooting did take place by that water hole and that water tank that was over there. And we didn't see anybody, but I could only imagine with the Rio Grande, you know, being right there. Um, that maybe that's where that group of, you know, undocumented migrants were coming from is from the Rio Grande because the border would be right there. All right, Nasaya Mancini, thank you so much with our sister stations, KFOX and CBS4 in El Paso. And we'll be checking in again with you in the coming weeks to see what happens with this case. Of course, we'll keep you updated. And real quick, we're going to talk with Adi Jimenez, who used to be in charge of Homeland Security Investigations here in South Texas. Adi, you just saw a little bit of the details of what happened. What, in your opinion, do you think the Bureau or your, you know, former agency is doing right now with this investigation? Uh, thank you. Uh, so thank you. So here's what we have. We have a crime at the border that includes undocumented individuals uh, entering the border uh, from Mexico to the U.S. So you have the jurisdiction of Holland Security Investigations. Um, and it's very significant that now you have a person dead and another one injured. Um, so when you have a U.S. citizen uh, in this time of crime against a, an undocumented person, now we see the FBI working in conjunction with HSI because if 
this could have been an accident or what if uh, this is a hate crime. Uh, we always have to look at the possibilities. Uh, this is the beauty of investigating uh, in detail, allowing the agencies to, to collect all the evidence and be able to sort out exactly what happened. Adi, let me also ask you, I mean, this incident happened around seven o'clock in the evening. It is said that there were 13 migrants that were getting water at a tank on the side of the road. And according to documents that are reporters out in El Paso, like Nasia Mancini, whom we just spoke to, they're telling us that they went back again. What stands out to you about their story? One, and we just talked about that, but also the fact that one of the brothers was a guard or a warden, they're calling him, at a detention center back in 2019 and had been fired. What is Homeland Security Investigations and those investigating this now going to be looking at in those reports from when he worked at that detention center? Uh, yeah, so we have several things here. First of all, in Texas at 7 p.m., it's still daylight. This is not like at 7 p.m. it's gonna be pitch, pitch dark. Um, the uh, the first uh, allegation is that the, the individuals were hunting and they noticed some activity around a, uh, a water reservoir uh, area. Absolutely, everybody in South Texas, specifically the people that go hunting or have ranches, know that for years, many of the undocumented uh, migrants coming from uh, through the ranches, they will look for these uh, water sources because it's hot, they're dehydrated, and they use them to quench their third, uh, thirst and, and, and replenish some of the water. So the fact that it was still kind of daylight, um, the, they, they, dro they drove by uh, the water source and they noticed some movement. Uh, when you have animals in the water, um, they will scatter uh, when when you stop and, and, and go reverse to look at the area, they don't hide. Uh, so they claim that they saw movement, like somebody was hiding. Evidently, that shows you the first indication that they may be people. And then if they're hunting and they wanted to just scare animals uh, around, uh, they apparently aim and fire at least two shots, killing one person and injuring another. Um, traditionally, when you go hunting, you are very careful of what are you aiming to, because everybody knows that you're responsible to whatever item or, or, or animal you are targeting and anything behind that animal. It happens the same thing to law enforcement, right? So looking at the totality, um, the time of day, having uh, daylight, having a hunting rifle with some kind of uh, telescopic magnification. It's kind of awkward, uh, the allegation that it was an accident and they were looking for animals. Um, evidently, Holland Security Investigation and the Federal Bureau Investigations, they will both uh, be looking at uh, all the angles of the incident, including some of the, uh, those documents of the, one of the brothers that work in the private detention facility. It's a detention facility that was used for undocumented immigrants. He was fired. We need to see that record, that documentation, why this individual was fired. Was it fired because he showed some predisposition for some uh, hostilities against undocumented? Was it something that he was prejudiced against the, these individuals? 
what we have to find out because if there's a uh, uh, relevant conduct happened in 2019 to have him fire, and now we have a situation where he uses a firearm, and now we have a dead undocumented and one injured, it will be relevant, and this could then become a hate type of crime. So we have to pay attention to the details of the investigation. Thank you for joining me for this edition of Immigration Crisis, The Fight for the Southern Border. I'm Jamie Virgen. Until next time.